Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first uh, United Cloudcast. Is that what we're going to call it today? I don't know. It's our working pilot. To, working we're title still, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm joined by Hameem from Tactic Talk, um, as I always will be. Um, I, I kind of want to introduce you as something to do with United, like, oh, I don't know, the, 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 the big red machine or something like that. But you haven't really got like a yeah, United so I stayed sort away of thing from like the United United niche. Because when I first started, I was like, if I go into the United niche, I'm more likely to not be taken seriously. I don't know if you've experienced that. Like from other football fans, they just like categorise you as just the United fan. So like, yeah. Yeah, I've had that for sure. So, yeah. But I am a big red so that, that counts. <laughs> you're a machine as well, mate. Yeah, and yeah, everyone mate. will find that out soon. <laughs> um, anyway, we've got quite a bit to talk about today, don't we? And uh, yeah. uh, the sort of format of these episodes, I mean, I want to be just as open and available as, uh, as I can be. Uh, the format's going to be this, what, what's it you called it? The Gagan pressing section at the start. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Could you explain, it, explain what our plan is with that to everyone? Yeah, so it's probably a bit backwards. Obviously, this being the United Cloud podcast, it makes sense for Isaac to introduce it. But I'm sort of here, I don't want to say host, because that's a bit jarring, but um, I'm just here as like <laughs> the bloke that's going to bring the conversation forward, sort of taking the role of like your followers and bringing questions to Isaac that you might have um, and the United social media landscape is sort of currently talking about. So... The Gagan press section to kick off the uh, start of the podcast was sort of bringing forward the relevant pieces in social media related to Manchester United. And the way we were thinking of measuring these relevant pieces is looking directly at the content on United Cloud and seeing which ones have the most engagement. And ultimately, the ones with the most engagement are the ones that most people are interested about. So the Gagan present section, all all action, intense conversation, uh, a five minute, six minute section where I pose to Isaac his best performing posts and Isaac sort of covers them as quickly and concisely as possible um, and starts the conversation in pretty intense fashion. So I don't know if I've done the, yeah, the section. I think it's well like... I think you definitely have. And I think it can almost like seem like, oh, you know, what, 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 what's this for? Just talking about Instagram posts. But the, the actual embedded content within there is huge. Um, so we've got some this week about Andrea Nana being stranded. And we've got some, uh, of course, about uh, uh, Rasmus Hoyland and the way that he runs the channel. So I'm excited to, to get into that. And uh, yeah, after the gig and pressing, we've got like a main subject and then like a maybe secondary main subject. We've got some different sort of gimmicks you want to introduce uh like the the 10 hog meter do you want to explain the 10 hog meter to everyone yeah so <clears throat> it's, a, it's a play on the name 10 hog and we were thinking of ranking players whether that's signings or players we have currently in the team using this 10 hog scale that me and isaac sort of came up with over a, a coffee uh, I don't know if you've heard the story about Tuchel and Pep Guardiola talking like football strategy <laughs> over coffee, but it's me and Isaac over a coffee talking about the Ten Hag scale and how it will revolutionise the podcasting game. Don't know if it's going to quite do that, but we'll give it a go. Hopefully it's something interesting that uh, the fans of United Cloud are interested in. And yeah, I think we should kick straight into it. And talk about your best performing post okay. of the last month uh this was a quote from lissandro martinez who is obviously currently injured coming back into the squad uh, a quote talking about united's chances in the fa cup he got 1.6 million reach isaac as concisely as possible what do you make of lissandro's ideas and potentially united's chances in winning the fa cup I think Lissandro Martinez is, has been a huge miss, first and foremost. I think, you know, you look at what's 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 troubled after the season in the build-up, um, especially, and, and in terms of our ability to mark cutbacks, and Lissandro Martinez solved a lot of those problems on his own. I think, yeah, he's shown great ambition uh, with this quote about wanting to win the FA Cup, and uh, I'm, you know, very happy that the post performed so well, actually. Um, I was quite surprised. Uh, but, you know, we last season I was there at the FA Cup final, it was so, so close, and it just felt like, you know... We, 
we, we know with Ten Hag, we know how we want to want to develop as a team. We know how we want to progress through cup competitions. And I think I don't, I'm really surprised we do do one more this season. And of course, we need a nice run, and uh, we've now got a chance to to actually build some momentum. Not having uh, four different fronts to fight, fight on. Uh, obviously, last season the Carabao Cup, the Champions League, are out of those now. So we've got a bit of time to focus on the FA Cup, Newport on the on the weekend, and hopefully we're we're in in a pretty decent position. That's perfectly covered, mate. Uh, we'll move on to the next one, uh, which is Hoyland running the channels. This was a post that Isaac put out on his opinion on why Hoyland has struggled recently at United, obviously competing for a lot of aerial duels, uh, playing in a team that's asking him to you know take the ball with his back to play quite often. Um, Isaac made a good observation of Hoyland's time at, at Atalanta, where Hoyland's speciality almost was running the channels and using his, his massive pace, which I feel like United haven't utilised. Uh, this post did mm. 40,000 reach and got 8,000 likes, so quite a relevant topic right now. Isaac, have you got anything to add to what you said initially and how you think we can better unlock Hoyland's potential? I think quite a lot of the talk about Hoyland has obviously been the goals that he scored, but I think the way that Ten Hag has used Hoyland uh, completely changed uh, in the last couple of games. I think typically this season, there's been long balls fired into him. He's not necessarily the most um, proficient at, at taking super long long kicks. Monana, for example, taking them down and controlling the ball. That's not his game. That's never been his game. It will, it will come with time and experience and practice, but he's somebody who wants to get in behind. You know, he uses his frame to roll defenders, to, to explode past defenders, to run into the channels, to receive the ball. It's a bit of trickery. You know, he's a very technical player, as we've seen. Um, look at what he did to Mickey van der Ven. That's a perfect example of, of Hoyland running the channels. And he did that at Atalanta all the time. And that's something we haven't seen enough at Manchester United. So I am really quite encouraged by what he did. And I'm hoping that Hoyland can do more of that. If he does more of that, he'll definitely score more goals. Just to touch on that, mate, um, we saw glimpses of his sort of running, his powerful running ability and running the channel's ability in the Champions League. I'd argue them mm. matches that we saw them in was very transition-based matches. There was a lot of transitions happening, and that's probably why we saw it. Uh, in the Premier League, however, we're coming up against a lot more compact teams and less space for Hoyland to do that. How do we potentially get Hoyland running the channels and using his pace in behind in matches where, you know, it's not end-to-end transition football? I think United need to get much better at sort of creating a false transition. And the way that you do that is by moving the ball more quickly. You know, cutting a long story short. Um, so, look, I think it's very much how do we, how do we, how do we maintain pressure how do we maintain structure we obviously even in these in these more uh sort of fixed games we don't we don't have the ability to exert pressure ourselves if you can exert pressure you can win the ball back very quickly counter press uh you know have 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 control through through pressure sustained pressure territory then you get a situation where you know you look at the sort of goals that um dominic solanke is scoring at bournemouth and it's, a lot of them comes from quick counter presses, and that's something that United want to do. We've got the most high regains in the league, um, so it's something where hopefully we can develop tactically as a team, and then Holland will pay the pay reap the rewards. That's perfectly summed up. We will talk slightly more on that in our next section, uh, where we will do a more mm. deep dive into United's tactics in the first phase, second phase, and final phase of uh, of play. Uh, but we will swiftly move on. That's the point of the Gagan press section. The next one we were talking about, uh, you mentioned it in the intro, uh, was a post on Onana being stranded. Um, This got 138,000 reach, and I feel like people engaged with it because it was sort of comical and sort of summed up Onana in a football sense, not in just like a like it being a funny story, but him being stranded 150 miles away from where he should be. Surely there's like a there's something to say about that, Isaac. <laughs> yeah, I, I really want Onana to do well. Um, you know, I really want him to do well. And I, I think it was definitely the right decision to move on from David De Gea. So I don't want to get down that rabbit hole. Uh, obviously, it's not been perfect for him. At the same time, I don't think it's been quite as bad as some have made out. I think some of Onana's underlying stats are pretty good. Like his, you know, his goal prevention is awful. But yeah, of course, he's made quite a lot of mistakes. It's quite a lot. 
comical mistakes too. And this kind of just sums it all up, really. And however, you can't fault his, ed- his dedication and his. The guy was going to play two games in 24 hours, or at least be part of the squad for two games in 24 hours, and showed an immense amount of dedication to try and travel over to the Ivory Coast and, and, to, and to the Cameroons game so you know fair something goes wrong you're, you're finished so yeah quite a funny situation uh he obviously did play against Senegal maybe left a little bit to be desired for some of his goalkeeping in that game but yeah uh sums it all up really doesn't it <laughs> on that um obviously just a little touch point from that Onana's leaving which opens up an opportunity for Altai Bayandir who you know United fans have a bit of a knack for players who aren't playing we sort of like knight them as the saviour as like they're so much better than what we already have uh, just a little thing on what you think Bayandir could uh, bring to the table and what, what to expect from him uh, it's interesting I, I think I think it's, it's a classic story with Manchester United fans of yeah, as you say like almost if you're not in the team you're you're, you're on better terms with the fans than you are than you are if you are in the team um especially when we're inconsistent especially when we're losing games especially when players are making mistakes um, I've not seen enough of Bayandir to be able to give you a, you know, a coherent uh, summary of his, of his of his qualities. I mean, he looks like he's got, he's a decent goalkeeper. I heard a couple of pretty bad references when we were linked with him for the first time, which was back in the in the January. I actually had an exclusive bit of information about him, um, you know, failing a medical for Manchester United uh, back in January um, before we did sign him. Uh, obviously, now we do have him, and he's he, he's there, and we'll probably see him play. Uh, in the FA Cup. So, no, I mean, he's obviously someone that Ten Hag has rated for a while. Uh, Ten Hag can obviously feel that he can he can be a, a, a good backup and deliver on his tactical demands. So we'll see how, how the dynamics of the team change. When quite a lot of people were clamouring for him to come in, I was saying, well, yeah, I get it, but I, I think we want we want to make the most of Onana's ability on the ball. We've definitely not seen that at United, and we need to give him more time to develop that. We need to give the team more time to get used to it. Um, so uh, yeah, it's annoying to have to rotate your goalkeeper. Um, I think Ten Hag is someone who loves having a settled team, and the goalkeeper is the most important position in a settled team, um, given that they're probably rotated the least. So yeah, it's an annoying situation. I don't know what to expect from Bayern. We'll see. We'll see on the weekend, and we'll see moving forward. It'll be funny to see. Not that I wish him like a bad performance or anything, but the the people with the saviour complex on Bayandir, if he mm. was to have a shocker against Newport in the FA Cup, people might have their fantasy shattered. <laughs> and the sort of outrage from that might be funny to see on socials. Uh, we have yeah. got to the end of the Gagan Press section. Uh, we had a couple more uh, subjects to cover, but we didn't want to drag it out too much we've just got one more thing for you mate uh, this was your final post on uh, Ratcliffe building a new training ground uh, clearly captured the imaginations uh, of Manchester United fans got 216,000 reach with 20,000 likes what are your thoughts on Ineos's development uh, their first steps we're going to get into it with our main conversation which will follow this up uh, but just quickly on the training ground yeah, I mean, I think, look, Ineos have made a couple of big, big moves already and they're not even through the door yet. Um, Manchester United definitely need a new training ground and we need at least an upgraded stadium. I think I've typically been in the camp who would argue that maybe a new stadium is a good idea. Uh, my CL Trafford's quite high up. It's quite annoying to get to. And I realise compared to other grounds, like, you know, there's much more better internal infrastructure in the stadium. Uh, and, you know, there are, there are structural issues. There's things where it's clearly out of date. Um, and you look at the other elite stadiums in the Premier League and you think, wow, why, why don't we have this? Uh, at the same time, Old Trafford's a historic ground, so I wouldn't necessarily be against uh, against it if they wanted to just renovate it. Um, training ground, on the other hand, there's no reason not to completely go overboard. Um, obviously, Ronaldo was very critical of our training ground, quite famously. Um, but I think that it's something where it's very obvious sign that Ineos are not messing around. Looking for a completely new place is something which... You know, it takes it's going to cost a bit of money, and and they're willing to put the money down. So I'm excited about it. So that's the end of the Gagan press section. Let's talk about Ineos more specifically. Uh, we're filming this a day after the news broke that uh, Ineos have appointed the uh, the former CFO of Manchester City, Omar Barada, 
and has appointed mm. them as a CEO of Manchester United. Initial thoughts on the appointment and maybe what mm. this could mean as a first appointment for, for Ineos? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's um, important, uh, you know, to to recognise the difference between normal... Uh, I, I, I a couple of people attacking me on Twitter for saying CFO when I meant it in terms of the footballing business vernacular rather than typical business vernacular. Uh, you know, chief football operations officer he was, uh, I think, his last role. He's also been the COO at City and the City Group too. Worth considering this is also for the entire city group rather than just Manchester City. So it's a, you know, it's a guy who's very senior, um, you know, tipped to become the new director of football um, as well uh, or operation, whatever football. Operation. I don't know what they don't know what their titles are. I don't really care too much for the city group's internal structure, although it might be something we look to steal some more things from. Um, I think it's unbelievable. Uh, Manchester United taking somebody from from Manchester City anyway is 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 quite rare. I don't know. If it's something which is more more common in the business side, but I, I can't remember the last time I saw something like this on such a high high level. Um, I think people have got to remember there's people who are probably harboring some concerns about you know his affiliation with City, the fact he was there for you know over a decade. He's somebody who clearly like loved his time at Manchester City too. Um, same time, it's very different on the business side. At the end of the day, we're getting a really good operator in, uh, somebody who's worked very closely with elites in the game for the last you know, 15, 20 years. It's a fantastic, fantastic move. And it's a move of incredible, um, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a statement for Minios. And I think there's not really much else they could have done appointments-wise that would have, that would have you know, made people look up from their screen almost. Like, it's... Uh, taking somebody from City, regardless of his experience and expertise, is, is an incredible step. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate. Obviously, Isaac, mm. you, you might know Isaac as forever the optimist. Uh, Isaac would claim he's a realist and not someone that's going <laughs> to, you know, get really pessimistic about anything without it being rational. Uh, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. You said that you didn't care about um, City's structure when referencing Barada. I, however, think there's quite a lot to look into in City's structure and Barada's past experiences at City and how he moved through the ranks. Um, he was actually a head of sponsorship at Barcelona um, from 2004 to 2011 and moved over to Director of Partnership and Sales. Uh, into Manchester City specifically in 2011. Uh, this is something that isn't necessarily football operations based. It was very much a commercial move. Uh, this is something that preempted where City was going because in 2012 they hired Ferran Soriano, who was the C vice CEO of Barcelona, as a CEO um, of Manchester City, and. The reason I mention this is there's a lot of parallels to be drawn to Manchester United in that regard. Um, Soriano came in in a newly formed CEO role where City intentionally separated the commercial side of things with the football inside. Soriano taking over the commercial side and Barada and some guy called Tom Glick taking over the commercial side of things. And that was how City Group developed. And it all culminated... Uh, sorry, Manchester City developed. And it all culminated when Soriano started to develop the City Group and acquire multiple clubs to the network. And I think that's where Barada... Like, if you look at it with that context, Barada then became a Senior VP Group Commercial Director. And I'm focusing on the word group there because... This was the context of the City Group forming in the early 2010s. I'd argue that Barada's experience was more commercial with making sure there was a synergy between all of the clubs that City acquired and Manchester City's brand. And he clearly did a good job at that. Um, he moved on to Chief Operating Officer, which again isn't something football orientated. So... It was only 2020 when he became a CFO, Chief Footballing Operating Officer. Um, and his prior nine years experience was more city group based and network team based. 
So I was, with that context in mind, how qualified is he to do this job specifically as a CEO of Manchester United? And also, like, are we actually expecting him to be football orientated or more leaning on his experience of establishing networks with Manchester City? Because I, I feel like that could be something that Ineos look to do in the future. And maybe that's something that Barada's expertise is there for. I think the Ineos group will want to have a system where all of the clubs are related in a network, uh, you know, sort of satellite clubs, a little bit like City. I think that's going to be potentially the future of modern football. Um, obviously, you can see what Todd Bowley is doing at Chelsea as well with Strasbourg, uh, etc. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if United do a similar thing with Nice and Lausanne in Switzerland, which are also owned by Ineos. Um, obviously, we'll see how it goes in the next few years with the you know, completion of the takeover process and hopefully any else do become majority owners sooner rather than later. Um, I, I do hear your concern um, in terms of like, is it a footballing appointment or not? But I think, you know, the CEO is not there to, 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 to make footballing decisions, um, you know, without, without, without delegation and without, um, you know, working with the team around him. I think the problem that people had with Ed Woodward was that he wasn't a footballing man and got too involved in that. Now, Barada has got footballing experience, um, of course, and he, he's, he, I think he certainly is a man who, 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 who loves football and works in football. And you can see the way that he talks, um, you know, in some of the City, city documentaries uh, when, he, when he's interviewed. Clearly a very rational thinker, thinking about contracts, thinking about profiles of players, um, you know, thinking about the youth development as well, which will be important for United, thinking about how you can generate a system of FFP sustainability. I mean, it's quite ironic talking about that from a Manchester City point of view, but um, of course, City are able to sell their assets far more easily than United. We've really struggled to sell academy products. We've really struggled to sell players who, who, who are no longer of significant use to us, whereas City are always able to garner a high fee. So... I think that Barada's role there is, is 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 pretty clear, and it's pretty clear why they wanted to make him, you know, potentially to to become the new footballing director um, later. Um, I think United needs somebody which is who who is more qualified in the business side of things as well. I think you know people praised Ed Woodward's role at Manchester United in terms of the amount he grew the business and the amount of brand deals that we got, but. This is one of the easiest brands in the entire world to get a brand deal with. You know, it's not exactly a, uh, you haven't got to move a mountain to get to get a brand deal at Manchester I mean, United. So I feel like I could do like a, a decent sale. Give me give me a a Man United brand and a Man United PowerPoint, and I'm sure I could get like a couple bang. quid down the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure you could um, easily. Um, I think there's people people far less qualified than me and you who could do that job. Even you know, it's. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm obviously I'm saying that from a position of, 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 of a slight ignorance, but at the end of the yeah. day, it's you know it's it's a huge huge brand which anyone would want to work with. Anyone bite your hand off to work with Manchester United for a while. They clearly like Barada. They clearly like what he's done. And uh, the Glazers aren't idiots. Like they know that Manchester United have been underperforming um, with, with with their direction and with, with what they've been doing financially and and obviously as a footballing institution. So they're not gonna they're not gonna say no to to to, to very good help here. Um, and and he was recommended um, Barada to them, and obviously yeah, they they, they saw it through. But the original. Uh, sort of stipulation that everyone thought was going to, or the situation everyone thought was going to happen, was that uh, Jean Claude Blanc would be the new CEO, who's currently the obviously, of course, the CEO of Ineos Sport um, and has a seat on the board of Sir Dave Brailsford. Um, by not having Blanc as a CEO, but still having him involved as as Ineos CEO and having a seat on the board, United uh, Ineos essentially get more influence over United. Um, because they've now got a CEO who they trust, uh, who they've appointed, who they've identified, and they've obviously got Blanc on the board too. So, if anything, I think it's a positive step in terms of how much control Ineos have. Uh, so, I quite like that part of it too. Um, I just wanted to add yeah, on that. Yeah, I get, I get the concern. I just wanted to add on that quickly. Yeah, go on. I just noticed a parallel to City culminating their sort of band of Spanish executives in, in the early 2010s. Um, they actually had cheeky, I don't know how to say his second, his second name, Berigestein, uh, if you might have heard yeah, Ber- like yeah. um, They had him as a director, which was one level above Ferran Soriano. Um, Soriano yeah. came in and he was very football-orientated man, 
but he was very much his role was very much dependent on making like establishing that network of the city group and being an innovative force in that sort of endeavor and cheeky was above him and sort of oversaw that process i'm seeing a parallel here with um blanc being the ineos director um i'm not sure of his official title and then maybe barada sort of replicating what soriano did making sure like the strategy of manchester united is is very um consolidated and also making sure that's transferable across a potential network that and then maybe the rumors of us potentially poaching dan ashworth paul mitchell as well to join the team it's starting to make sense that we're, we're sort of almost ripping off what city did you know city looked at their most successful team in their era when they first changed ownership and thought let's just copy them copy their structure, even poach some of their best people. Uh, I feel like we're doing pretty much the exact same thing, which is ironic because we're doing it 12 years later, but <laughs> like, surely there's something to be said for that parallel there. No, I think that's a really good point. And I, look, honestly, like, I think people need to probably wake up to the idea that Ineos probably will do this satellite satellite club thing um i think what you say about ashworth and mitchell is true and maybe maybe there's a case where one of ashworth and mitchell has a role at manchester united and the other one's got a role at ineos or or ineos sport and that there's you know eventually a multi-club uh you know sort of system i think the biggest advantage of a multi-club system from a tactical perspective at least is that you can loan players out to teams where you know exactly the style of play and the principles which a club uses perfect for development you know you, you see so many of Manchester United's loans in the last 10-15 years being, to, being for players going out to clubs where they just do not fit the tactical approach and therefore we've not probably generated as much from our youth academy as we would have liked to have because players haven't developed fully by the time we sold them and and players haven't been as useful for us and we haven't had as many academy graduates um, who've gone through loan pathways. I think most of the players who have come through the academy have, have developed in the first team with the manager there at the time. Obviously, we've had conflicting styles of play, play anyway. So having an established sort of style of football, established way of doing business across multiple different clubs with these very you know capable executives working on that, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. And Barada is somebody who knows how that works, as, as you say. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what we see with Ashworth and Mitchell. And it's quite an exciting prospect, really. At the same time, the purist in me, I'm not I'm not sure if I can really agree with the, comp- the lack of competitive element of owning so many clubs. Like, what happens if you own a club in France, Nice, who are es- essentially a feeder club to United and are one of the best West, best clubs in that country? Um, you know, what if you own clubs in Switzerland and in Brazil who are, like, you know, outstanding compared to the competition, but they're all feeding up to Manchester United? It only leads to more like centralization for the Premier League, and uh, I don't want to get 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 caught off on a tangent. But I don't know if that's necessarily the most fair idea. But I guess we're going to be the ones reaping the rewards anyway. Yeah, we threw ethics out the window after eighteen years of of Glazer ownership. <laughs> we just want success now. <laughs> ethics can uh, be a secondary. Um, no, but I do understand what you mean. Like the purist in me has concerns, uh, but like you said, that's a whole different conversation. Uh, we could talk about. Um, the executive uh, movements of people for quite a while but something you said there that could segue us over to our next um, topic of conversation which is United's tactics you were talking about um, transferring a tactical identity across multiple clubs which is funny because we're yet to develop a tactical identity uh, a consolidated one I do see a vision uh, unlike a lot of United Mm. fans but we're yet to develop one at Manchester United, so to to jump the gun, um, I know I know what you're saying, but to jump the gun and say well, let's transfer it over to other clubs, I think that's their long-term plan. But how do we better develop our own tactical identity before we move on to that sort of step with with network clubs? What do you think Eric Ten Hag can do to better establish a tactical identity? Um, I think, you know, you're looking at sort of tactical entities that are associated with managers, associated with clubs. Manchester United have often been a, a club who do play transitional, end-to-end football, exciting football. Uh, you know, that's the sort of way this club has scored so many of its iconic goals. They've been on transitions. And, yeah, look, I think 
Ten Hag is someone who's undoubtedly proven this season that he is an, he is an arch-pragmatist. He's not somebody who's going to sit down with a set of principles and demand that everyone adapts to those principles every single game. Um, he is willing to compromise. Uh, but at the same time, I think some of his compromises have gone too far. Others of his compromises have led to more problems than they've actually created. Um, obviously, we've got a slightly incohesive build-up structure. I say slightly, it's, it's been pretty pretty bad uh, for most of the season where we've got three players in the first line and just one player in the second line because he likes to have six across the front line to create overloads. But United haven't had a technical uh, quality in that first and second line this season to be able to capitalise from anything on the on the final line, uh, you know, from, be able to capitalise from the overloads. So... We're in a situation where we've now got Martinez coming back, who's obviously technically very gifted. We've got Casemiro coming back, who gives more security on transition, so it can allow you to be a bit more expansive. Um, and maybe you, you look at a situation where the 3-1 build-up structure actually works just because of the individual brilliance, I should, I should say, you know, the, the, the tactical ability, um, the technical ability of these players. I just wanted to pick up something you said there um, about the 3-1 mm. build-up structure. Are you saying that's intentional or is it out of incompetence of the players or like Ten Hag in establishing the 3-2 build-up structure? Because most, you know, um, possession-based teams, like you uh, rightly mentioned, build up with a 3-2 where they have three players and two um, in front of them. You see Tottenham, for example, with their inverted fullbacks, they seem to have established a 3-2. Man City have very different ways of doing it. They can do it with Stones dropping in from centre-back. They can do it with Walker or previously Cancelo, Rico Lewis. They're all competent enough to play the 3-2. Why do you think, with all that background information of success, Ten Hag is still opting for the 3-1? Do you think it's intentional or do you think it's because his players aren't doing his... Role like I, I would have thought that Ten Hag wants the three two, but you're saying that it's an intentional thing from Ten Hag to to, to build up in, in a three one. Rationally, the only way that makes sense is that Ten Hag is doing a three one because he he wants that six across the final line, and I, that the only reason why I say that is because it's probably easier and safer to do a three two. Um, Ten Hag obviously wants like really high regains. Uh, he he wants to be, he wants to win the ball back quickly. And United actually have got pretty decent underlying stats in that in that regard. Um, the problem is is that with a three, if you if you if you if you if you're losing the ball, you've got six across the front line. You'd obviously win it back more more easily. But you're not you're not backing up the press in the same way. I think you know we've seen a little bit with Diego Dallo coming inside this season. You do have a fullback watching the sort of the, the 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 half space in a deeper area for a counter attack and backing that up but the fullbacks themselves haven't actually gone on and backed the press as as, as I'd, I'd like to see them do and i think that when you're using a, a three a three one structure it means obviously you can get you know you, you lose a ball you can you can get you can get your six in the front line pressing more aggressively and i i i try to look at it from a out of possession perspective, because in possession doesn't, doesn't make any sense. You know, obviously we haven't got we haven't got a technical a technical enough you know midfielder to be able to do that one position. I mean, Maynu's tried his best. Casemiro tried his best at the start of the season and probably got himself injured doing it. Um, I would much rather see a three-two, and I'd rather him switch into that. But I think he just I think he's like trying to. Uh, He's, he's moving away from his principles so much. He's just trying to hold on to something. I don't know. It's, it's a difficult one to rationalise. When you said Casemiro was trying to do it at the start of the season, mm. I'd argue, like, when I was witnessing how open we were playing the 3-1 then, I was thinking it was out of incompetence, not because it was intentional. I was thinking that Lissandro and Luke Shaw were supposed to be taking turns of supporting Casemiro in the build-up to form the 3-2. But because we were still like ironing out how to play this way, they just weren't doing it at the right times. And I think we saw examples of Lissandro dropping into midfield to create that 3-2, or Luke Shaw doing the exact yeah, we same did. thing. But I just didn't think we refined it well enough before all our players started getting injured. So... There, mm. when we were playing the 3-1, I was like, this is completely like dysfunctional. We're doing it because we're incompetent in doing what Ten Hag wants to do. But now we've been doing it for like, since then, 
with Kobe Mainu, no one's even tried to take up that baton and become the three-two from defence. And it's like, is it is it intentional? And I, I, I don't know. I'm struggling with that because it's like, I don't see a world where a three-one works in the Premier League. It, interestingly, um, and, and obviously Ten Hag really wanted to sign Onana. If you have Onana splitting the centre-backs, if you then got a three and then you can push one of them up, so Martinez, for example, going up into the second line, we didn't see this enough, as you say, because Martinez got injured and I think it's such a massive tactical loss, uh, as was Casemiro, um, although he, was, he wasn't playing especially well when he got injured. Um, I think if you have Onana stepping forward and you have Onana splitting the two in the first line, um, and then you can push Martinez up and you maintain that sort of 3-2 with Onada, and then you get six across the front line. I think that's what Ten Hag wants. We haven't had time to do that. He's had to be pragmatic. He's, I think he's stuck to it out of, I know Martinez will come back and when he is back, he's going to be the most important player on my team. And I know that next season, I might be able to sign a better deputy for him, you know, somebody other than Johnny Evans. Uh, no disrespect to Johnny Evans, who's been fantastic, but he's not got the same, you know, technical ability and uh, sort of physical ability as, on, as, as Martinez to do that. Just before you move on to that, um, I uh, mm. just wanted to mention some stats that I picked out for Evans deputising Martinez. Um, if I can find them. Just a second. So just on that, I wanted to say that um, in terms of progressive passes into the final third, uh, Lissandro Martinez at his best last season was averaging 6.22 per 90. And progressive passes in general, um, which discounts the first 40% of the pitch, he was uh, averaging 5.78 per 90. Johnny Evans, meanwhile, I think he's done a good job deputising, um, was at, this so far this season, has been averaging 2.55 passes into the final third and 2.83 progressive passes, which are yeah. competent numbers, but half almost half the numbers of Lissandro Martinez so it's no surprise that our progression in the first phase of of play hasn't been as perfect as possible uh, just some stats to to back up what you're saying there Isaac yeah very good very good I like the preparation yeah, it's yeah excellent stats. I came prepared um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it I love it um and yeah I think I think Evans, like, yeah, he obviously has done well, and it is a came in as a fifth choice centre back, and you know, probably wouldn't expect to play him in near this much. Um, obviously, Varane had a nice dynamic with Martinez, where Varane would often carry it and Martinez would pass it, and Lindelof did okay last season too, and even he's been injured lately. Um, no, I, I, I think it's very much a case of if Martinez ever gets injured again, we cannot allow the entire tactical system to fall apart. Um, Look, it is. I guess you could argue, and uh, I, I would probably be in the camp of saying yes, it is incompetence if if you are so reliant on one individual. At the same time, I think Lissandro Martinez is a player of you know world class ability who's got you know very unique assets um, and 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 his ability in possession and his tactical sort of dexterity and flexibility in possession as well is something which is is irreplaceable. And we have obviously struggled to replace it of any sort of competent means. Um, is certainly in terms of in possession this season. Whilst you know the guys who have played instead of him have been good. Even Luke Shaw was able to deputise for him, has a sort of range of passing that Martinez has. But he's he's been injured the whole time. And when he has been there, we've had to play in left back because, you know, you need the creative quality. So it is all compromises. And I think the entire Ten Hag sort of spiral down downhill has been just compromise upon compromise and compromising upon the the failed solutions of previous compromises. And it just comes to the situation where you're currently trying to... You're always trying to fixing things now he's got his guys back now he's got his almost unicorn in possession in Lissandro Martinez back I do think we'll see a big improvement from United and uh, yeah it's not an ideal structure but as I talked about Onana coming more into into prominence and Martinez being there and even Mason Mount receiving on the half turn we can't ignore that like there's so much better to come from this team and I yeah I mean, obviously I'm not going to sack Ten Hag I think you're probably saying but um yeah I, I do think that with players back get a better tactical setup for sure it's the first I've heard Lissandro Martinez being called a unicorn I mean the Stretford end <laughs> tends to chant uh, the butcher 
Uh, but the unicorn <laughs> might not might not roll off the tongue just as just as well. The unicorn of Buenos Aires. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, moving the conversation further up the pitch, we're going to talk about the um, second phase of possession, which we sort of talked about, uh, but more in detail with the mm. midfield, and then finish it off with the um, the final phase. I wanted to first of all bring to you like a an ideal proposition of what I thought Ten Hag was trying to do with the midfield uh, based off his summer signings. And I still think he might be able, uh, might be trying to do this. And then I want you to make your, your thoughts on it, your com- comments, your observations, and whether I'm completely wrong in your opinion or where you, whether you could see this happening in the future. So I think we saw this at the start of the season. Um, obviously, we signed Mason Mount in midfield. Uh, Casemiro had a very good season, very solid season last year. And obviously, we're not going to replace Bruno Fernandes anytime soon. So I'd argue in midfield, like you said, we like most teams do in the final third of possession, they create players in the five attacking lanes. So you've got the left wing, you've got the left half space, you've got the striker right half space, right wing. And I feel like last season, we only had four attacking lanes occupied. And that was mostly because of the trade-off we got from Ericsson being more deeper. I think uh, Ericsson last season, he was in the 93rd percentile of progressive actions from a deeper position, but he was also in like the yeah. 13th percentile for um, ball recoveries in the, in the, in the final third. So that clearly shows with data, Ericsson's profile was a deeper profile. Compare that with Mason Mount, who doesn't have much progressive actions in the first third, but is like 94th, 95th percentile for ball recoveries in the final third for an attacker. I thought that was a very intentional switch from Ten Hag signing sorry, Mason Mount and moving a player that we had doing a lot of ball progression and getting an attacking ball recoverer to help bolster our attacking lanes, which previously had four players occupying the attacking lanes. I think Mason Mountain was bought with the intention of creating the five players occupying the five attacking lanes. And that's why in the first phase of possession, I thought we'd do a 3-2 and then a 2-3. So there you have five in the first phase, five in the second phase. It's not worked out like that. In Wolves, we saw, I, th- I think we the Wolves match at the start where we had Nunes just running through midfield. I think we saw an intention mm. of us trying to play like that because Mason Mount was very advanced with Bruno Fernandes and we had five players attacking, but there was no balance in what we were trying to do. I think with Mason Mount coming back, with all these players coming back, Lissandro Martinez, I still believe in my idealistic tactical brain that we're trying to do the 3-2 and Mason Mount and Bruno Fernandes in the right and left half space to create a 3-2-2-3, the WM formation. Am yeah. I completely wrong? Is this possible? Is Casemiro going to feature as the anchor in midfield, or will it be Kobe Miney? Or are we just going to deviate from this completely? I, I don't know, mate. Like You tell me. Like This is my <laughs> ideal head, but clearly... Ten Hag's not thinking the same way. And I'm not saying I'm more qualified than Ten Hag, far, far from it. I'm just trying to understand what he's doing. Because right now, I don't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think um, I think that's that's something that we've seen bits of. Uh, I do think Ten Hag likes a six across the front line, as we, as we discussed as well. Um, I think his ideal scenario is the fullbacks come in to support whoever the anchoring midfielder is in that two. Um, or indeed Martinez steps up and Onana steps up too. I do think he wants to have two because it's logical to have two. All the best teams have got two because you need to have a player on the left and on the right to, 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 to have enough enough angles available to you in build-up. Um, but I do think that, you know, when you see when you see how it's gone this season, um, you know, he has had, as we say, all these injuries. So, so look, I mean... For me, I think Dallow or Shaw, who are definitely his first choice to fullbacks when everybody's fit and, and, and on form, um, often would come into that too. Otherwise, they'd step further out wide and hold the width um, to try and make a six rather than a rather than a um, 
uh, uh, five. But both of them are also capable of playing in that three too. I think Mason Mount is someone who's just in the last line. I think Mason Mount is always going to be the last line looking to receive his back to goal to connect the attack and the defence. Uh, sort of in that, if you're going to break the last last line down into into smaller lines, he would be in the in the two, let's say, before the three and, or, or before the four even, if we if we have the fullbacks pushing up. So, yeah, I think Mason Mount is a connector in that team. I think he's yeah, very much somebody who's an outlet who can, like, once we have broken the press, he can capitalise on it. You know, there were too many times last season where Fernandez or Ericsson would find a line-breaking pass and there's nobody there to to capitalise on that effectively. And that's what Mount can do with his back to goal. Even, you know, from Martinez, I'm looking forward to seeing all of those Martinez line-breakers straight into Mount. Um, I think that's what he's there for. I think that's why he signed him as well, as, well as obviously, his his work out of possession. Um, so, no, I... I don't know. We can't. We can't. We can't say for sure yet how exactly it's going to line up, and sort of. I don't know what Ten Hag was planning for Kobe Mainu's development, and whether that changes his thinking. Does he use all four of Mainu, Mount Fernandez, and Casemiro? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I do kind of want to see what would happen with Mainu further forward as an eight, or having Casemiro next to him, giving a bit more liberation. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how it how it goes. I don't think I can predict now what he's going to do. Um, I like your prediction. Hopefully that does happen. Um, and we, we, that will be effective, I think. But uh, I do think he's got ideas of Mainu and Casemiro for sure. And just to finish off now, um, I think that was well summarised there. You've, you've helped my confusion slightly. Um, in the final uh, phase of possession, um, obviously you're saying Mount will push on, be the player that receives the ball um, as that two. Uh, what does that mean for the three in front of him? Um, would you ideally mm. see a front three of Garnacho, Hoyland, and Rashford on the right, or Rashford on the left, Garnacho on the right? Is that is that what we're seeing moving forward? I think Garnacho on the right has been a revelation. I think it's something that's happened, you know, out of necessity. Um, I don't know if it's something that Ten Hag and Garnacho have been working on behind the scenes for a while, or if it's just something that's happened recently. But he looks very comfortable um, receiving with his right foot. Most most top teams prefer the angles that you get with a left foot on the right, and I, I can't disagree. You know, obviously, you get to open open the game or when you receive coming inside rather than taking it down to the byline. So I, I can understand why you would probably prefer a left footer, but Garnacho is fairly ambidextrous um you know we saw his shot against Wigan with his left foot that was fantastic and you know he's he's got a couple of assists already in his career on his left foot and, and he does use it fairly fairly well um I I, I certainly think he's a two-way threat which is good he's not just going to always go on the outside he can cut in from the right I don't think Rashford's worth having on the right at the moment I don't think it makes any sense to to, to lose the massive upside of Rashford on the left to move him to the right whereas I think Garnacho is less of a less of a trade-off if anything I think Garnacho has actually had some better games on the right than he had on the left so I, I yeah that's the front three that I would go for I think Mount will really help um, especially if you've got Garnacho on the right hand side running in behind Mount loves that pass in behind across across onto on his right foot to an on-rushing winger and hopefully Garnacho could receive and take it across goal maybe we'll see that goal fall a few times so yeah I think Mount coming in from the left half space looking across that's going to really help um, and also maybe he can slide Hoyland in a little bit more we saw a couple of occasions um you know, where Hoyland's been in behind and no one's been able to pick him out. And hopefully Mount, you know, with his ability to receive and, and slip somebody in, we'll see more of that. Um, Mount and Hoyland could be a nice combination too. Yeah. Um, we saw Mount and Rashford link up quite well too, actually, before before he got injured. Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention um, Rashford's goal in, was it the Wigan game? The close quarters combination with Hoyland. Which game, which game was that? Uh, Tottenham. Tottenham. Tot- yeah, yeah, that goal. That was interesting yeah. because I think... The more of that we see, if we add Mason Mount into the mix, if we can develop that close quarter combination in the final third, that might be something that really progresses our game when we have our ideal build-up structure from first phase all the way to the final phase because we need, yeah. to, we need to be better at working within that structure and working in tight spaces. Not every match has to be a transition match for our players to be effective, in my opinion. So I think you wrapped that up perfectly, mate. I've just got one final question for you uh, to wrap up the podcast and wrap up the conversation about uh, tactics and our build-up. If, for the rest of the season, we have no injuries, how do you want Ten Hag to set up Manchester United in this, whether it's a 3-1-6, 
or a 3-2-2-3? Which players occupy which positions? How would you do it? Just to wrap up this segment. Um, Onana, Dallo, Shaw, Martinez, and then Varane. Although I do think Maguire's been great. Um, I think we've seen Martinez and Varane work better as a as a tried and tested partnership and I think they've got some synergy with each other so I'm throw that away um, then I'm, I'm not so sure in the midfield I, I think it depends on on, on whether on, on how he does approach the build up I think Mason Mount does need to start um, I think I think the upside of Mason Mount out of possession is massive I think the way that he can connect the players we discussed is very very important so I think it's Mount and Fernandez unequivocally in the starting lineup for me um, and then I, I would probably probably shift towards Mainu but I mean I don't know if he's got the I don't know how that's that's going to work. If you've got the definitely, if you've definitely got fullbacks coming in into a three-two, then I'm having Mainu. Otherwise, I'm a little bit more concerned about his sort of, you know, physical development and overexerting him. Maybe I'm having Casemiro instead. But we've got a squad for a reason. There's different ways you can approach this. Um, and then I'll have Garnacho on the right, Rasha on the left, and Hoyden up front. Um, I think the front three almost picks itself at the moment. Um, we haven't really got many options aside from those guys, um, and I think they're. In most, Man- in most Manchester United fans' minds, the best three we've got. Obviously, Anthony's not very popular at the moment, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we had to cash in on him in the summer. So, yeah, that's my that's my sort of view. Um, one thing we didn't get to talk about today, we didn't get to talk about the sort of the metric through which we'd like to sort of look at footballers. Uh, you know, the physical, tactical, technical sort of guy uh, slant on things. So we can start that in our next episode for sure. Um, but on on that on that topic, um, I think that. The, the, technical, the, the technical and tactical level of the guys coming back is so high that it can completely change the picture. And I think we have been quite positive today. It's been quite a positive episode. You wouldn't think Manchester United had lost more games than they'd won if you listened to this. Um, but I do think that there are better things to come. And yeah, maybe maybe, we'd be, maybe we're delusional, maybe we're living in our own little worlds. But <laughs> I do think there's, a, there's something of a vision, as you said, even, even if it's not a, a masterpiece or a final plan. I, I, do, I can kind of see what Ten Hag's trying to do here. Whether you think we're optimists or pessimists, we're forever trying to rationalise what Ten Hag yeah. is up to. And um, I think that's the best way to put it. I mean, people are probably going to listen to it and be like, these guys are tapped, like, deluded. <laughs> like, But, you know, the best way forward is to rationalise what we're seeing. And I think there is a lot of rational observations to look at. So, yeah, Isaac, I think for, for a first episode, there's a lot of... Um, conversation threads that we could have talked about for about an hour each conversation thread but um, I think we we covered all bases uh, and yeah well how yeah. do you think that went I think that was great um, I, you know I think everybody will enjoy it um, I, I, I do think you know we've got a lot we can a lot we can add we've got a lot of different different ways we can make it flow better and I think as a pilot it's fantastic so yeah I'm, I'm happy with that uh, big time um, this is still on record, I think, isn't it? Which is fine by me. If everyone wants to listen to our little uh, little debrief, I don't know. But uh, yeah, no, I think um, I'm excited to see where this goes, mate. Very good. Good stuff, yeah. So with that, the first episode of the United Cloud podcast, working title, we're still, if you have any suggestions, please let Isaac know. Um, yeah, wrapped up and complete. <laughs>